the Gospel of John is incredible because the Apostle John, he calls himself the one Jesus loved. That's the way he refers to himself. So he's very close to Jesus. He's in the inner circle. He knows Jesus as well as, as anybody that walked this planet. And his purpose um, in this gospel, he tells us, is to prove, actually, he wants to give the evidence and prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and his purpose in improving that is so that you might believe in him and receive life in him. And so the first 18 verses, we took three weeks and dug into them, did a deep dive back in April. And you can go back if you missed that and uh, catch up on that. But we did a deep dive. And it's this epic introduction to the deity of Christ. And he introduces Jesus as the logos or the word, that, that the word was with God, the word was God, not some important personal force or some, you know, mystical truth. He, he was with God. He was God. Jesus is the logos, the word. And he introduces us to Jesus as the life and the source of all that was created, the source of all lives, actually. And we're introduced to Jesus as the light, the light that bursts into the darkness, that shines into the darkness, that, that bursts into the mundane, that it's God taking on flesh. We get this, uh, the, the word, the incarnation and the concept, John 1, it's all there. He took on flesh and dwelt or literally tabernacled, which would bring the, the mind of the reader right back to Exodus when God dwelt in their midst. It says he tabernacled with us. And then there's an invitation that everyone is invited to receive him. Not everyone will receive him, tragically. Even to those his own that he came to, many did not receive him. But to all who do receive him, to those he gave the right to become children of God. And so then John introduces us to another John. It's a little confusing because there's John the Apostle and then there's John the Baptist. And John introduces us to John the Baptist in the first chapter of John. And that's what we began to dig into last week. There, there had been no prophet in Israel for 400 years. Been 400 years since, since Scripture had been written. Now, there was much anticipation of the Messiah during this time. Um, they believed they, the time was close. And so there was much anticipation among the faithful. And then there were just a lot of people that were sort of going about their life, ho-hum, which I think is what we can so often do, is just sort of go about life. It's busy. It's exhausting. It's crazy. We get distracted. We lose focus. And in the midst of that, this all of a sudden a prophet appears out in the desert. Think about that. I mean, a nation steeped in the history of God sending prophets, and then there's been this long period of, of where it just seems like God is, is silent. Now, he's still at work. We know that. And all of a sudden, a true prophet of God pops up on the scene out in the desert, and he's baptizing, and it's kind of strange, kind of hard to wrap their, their minds around. He's baptizing, and it was kind of hard to wrap their minds around because he's kind of baptizing in a different way. 
they were familiar with what's called mikvah or ceremonial washings. And one of the ceremonies that they would have is when Gentiles actually wanted to, to um, follow the one true God and become part of the Jewish faith, they would become baptized kind of in the ceremony uh, where they would go under the water and come back up. They would bring themselves down into the water and come back up as a symbol of a life that's being um, transferred or being cleansed on the inside. Well, John isn't doing that for for. Gentiles, he's calling all the Jews to be, to be baptized. In fact, he says some pretty strong things. He says, he says, hey, don't think you can rely on being a child of Abraham. Don't think just because you're an ancestor of Abraham that that's enough, that you're in with God. Because God looks at the heart. He, he said, hey, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones if he wants to. In fact, anybody remember the old song, Sunday school song, VBS, Father Abraham, Many Sons, Many Sons? Yeah, you remember that one, right? Who remembers the motions? All right. You can all come up front. We'll do a little demonstration for everybody else. Just kidding. And so he looks at the people, actually, and this is very serious because he's doing this, like, he's baptizing them and calling Jews to actually have kind of like to repent of their sins to it's a baptism of repentance to prepare their way for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of the one who will initiate the new covenant. It's this powerful picture. And many, many go out. He becomes so, so famous. And he's crying out, turn your hearts back to God. And the religious leaders come out and John doesn't pull any punches. He looks at him and he goes, you brood of vipers. He did not read, you know, how to, how to win friends, make friends, win, win friends, influence people. I can always count on my front row. So I need more of you, like, really smart people to sit on the front row with these guys so that, you know, you can help me out when I forget things. Yeah, no, John, John, I mean, he just, like, lays it out, right? And he's calling the people to repent. And the religious leaders, they're just so confused and, and, they're, and they're actually intimidated by him, but they send out a delegation to see him and they're like, who are you? And really what they're wanting to know is who gives you the authority? Why do you think you have the right to baptize in this way and to preach like this? Are you the Messiah? Do you think you're the Messiah? They were very intent. There, there were other false messiahs before Jesus came, and they were very intent about putting these things down so they could maintain their, their good relationship with Rome, and there wouldn't be an uprising. And it's interesting because in the midst of doing that, they missed the actual messiah. I think that's something profound. And he says, no, no, I'm not the messiah. Well, are you Elijah? You know, Malachi talks about Elijah who is to come. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm not Elijah. And Jesus tells us, uh, you know, Luke tells us he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And they're like, well, who are you? And he says, I'm a voice. I'm just a voice. I'm a mouthpiece. And I'm one that's here. And he, and he refers back to this amazing prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40. I'm a voice of one that's called to prepare the way for the Lord. I'm a voice that cries out. Basically, to make your heart a path that is ready for the king. And the things that are base and sinful in your life need to be brought up. And the things that are crooked needs to be straightened out. And the heart that is prideful and haughty needs to be humbled. 
There needs to be repentance so that you are prepared and ready to receive the king. And we're going to jump into the scripture. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. We're going to be in John chapter 1, verse 29. And we're only going to look at a handful of verses. And then we're going to kind of zone in on one thing and, and, do it, and do some study this morning. But we're going to pick up where we left off last week in John 1, 29. And here's what it says. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is after Jesus. We believe this is after Jesus had been baptized. And it was in Jesus' baptism that John recognizes him as Messiah through the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus has been driven out into the wilderness um, and tempted by, by Satan and overcome that temptation, defeated Satan. And as he walks back through now and Jesus walks by, John spots him over in the distance and to this huge crowd around him, he points and he does his mission, his job he's been sent to do, which is to point people towards Jesus. He's like, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And this is such an aha moment for John. Have you ever had an aha moment where, like, everything just clicked? Everything came together? Like, you, you had a problem, an issue, you were trying to figure out, all of a sudden it's like, wow. Well, no, no person revealed this to John. God revealed this to John. The biggest aha moment in history when he looks and, and things all of a sudden click and he goes, oh, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And I think for John, this is such a profound moment of recognition. See, this would have been actually an odd statement, I think, for many of the people standing around. I don't think they understood it. I don't think the disciples, if you go and read the Gospels, I don't think the, the disciples understood this until after the resurrection. This was hidden from so many. And yet John prophesies. He, he recognizes. In fact, you know, remember when, when the angel in, in Matthew and Luke, the angel uh, proclaims and prophesies Jesus birth. He says he will save their or his people from their sins, right? But see, here's the thing. They weren't looking at that time for a savior from their sins. They thought they had a whole system that got that all taken care of and covered. They were looking for a savior from Rome. They wanted a powerful, conquering king, which was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were expecting. In fact, it's interesting um, when Jesus, you remember the cool story where Jesus heals the paralytic and the four friends like take this guy on the stretcher and they take him up onto the roof because they can't squeeze into the house. And all of a sudden, as Jesus is in here teaching with this crowd, uh, they start digging through the roof. Can you imagine that? I see the dust coming down, and everybody's kind of looking up, like, what in the world is going on? And all of a sudden, a hole, and then it gets bigger and bigger, and everybody just stops and looks. That would be a dramatic moment in a sermon, right? I mean, like, I know when all of your phones go off with the emergency alert thing, that's dramatic, you know? Um, not really, but imagine that. Like, you hear something on the roof, and we're all like, whoa. And then they drop this guy down in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks down at him and says, take comfort while your sins are forgiven. And I think 
Most of the people in the room, including the dude there, just kind of stares up with a confused look on his face. See, Jesus addresses the root cause of, of the separation of what happened in this individual. Your sins are forgiven, but that's not what he was looking for. What was he looking for? I want to be healed. And Jesus healed him. And in the midst of this, in the Pharisees, and they had this, like, they're just mad. So I think everybody else is confused, but the Pharisees are ticked off. They're like, what is he saying? Nobody can forgive sins except for God. I mean, you can forgive other people's sins that sinned against you, but you can't forgive other people's sins that have sinned against other people, right? And they say, nobody can forgive sins but God. And... um, I think Jesus would go, that's the point. So they weren't looking for a Savior from their sins. They didn't, I think, have a good picture of the Lamb of God. Now, they, they knew this term because they knew Isaiah 53 really well. Talked about the suffering servant, the one that would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. But they didn't put two and two together at this time. They were very familiar with the concept of, of a lamb, of a sacrificial lamb goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and God actually killed an animal to cover their, their shame, to cover their nakedness. Paul, Paul uh, talks about how the wages of sin is death and how through Adam sin entered this world and the wages of sin, the result of sin is death. And so many of you I know have so many stories of broken relationships and pain because of sin that created pain and heartache and death in lives. And they understood this concept that because of their sin, uh, death happened and something had to die to cover that sin. They've been familiar with this concept for, for well over 1,500 years. It was interesting. <laughs> Yesterday, um, we had a drama at the house. The cat, the cat went out, and I hear, like, commotion and screaming and stuff upstairs. And, and the cat had captured a little cute bunny and drug it right up in front of, like, the door on the welcome mat in front of, right in front of my children. And they watched the carnage as he proceeded to eat half of the rabbit. (laughs) My wife tried to to post, like, the picture and say, why cat, you know, on Facebook. And it was, like, too graphic, (laughs) this image. And and my my nine-year-old daughter just, like, it was so profound because um, she's, like, she loves the cat, and so she can't really be angry at the cat, but she was angry at the cat. Like, where'd you do this cat, you know? But really, she got it. She was like, why did Adam sin? Why did he eat that fruit? <laughs> she gets it. She gets it. <laughs> this went all the way back to Abraham. And God providing a lamb in the place of Isaac to the Passover where they would actually bring this precious lamb in and care for it. And then they would have to sacrifice it. And, and they painted the blood on the side of the doorposts and, and, and the top. And they would pass under that in this beautiful picture of the ultimate sacrifice, the lamb of God that was coming. 
See, because the, the, the blood of a lamb couldn't actually take away sins, could just cover them and point forward towards the ultimate sacrifice, the one who would come and give his life for the forgiveness of sins, to actually remove our sins. But they didn't see it. They didn't get it because they weren't looking for a lamb. They were looking for a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember, you know that song we sing, Lion and the Lamb? See, they didn't get the whole first and second coming, that he would come as a lamb, and then he would return in judgment. He would return to gather his own the lion of the tribe of Judah. In fact, we talked a little bit about that last week, and I know we kinda, I kind of got us lost in the weeds at the end of the service a little bit, but the whole point of that was that we would live with an urgency, that we would live with an expectation, that we would live for his kingdom, that we would live with an urgency because of that to share the gospel because we know he's returning. We don't know when, but we're called to live like it could be any day and urgency. And so in this moment when John looks and he goes, look, the Lamb of God, I think there is something uh, so profound in his recognition. As all of a sudden the Holy Spirit reveals to him, I get it. He sees a picture of this. It's his aha moment. He goes, look, behold, the Lamb of God. Verse 30. He goes on, John the Baptist goes on. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It's kind of a deep statement, isn't it? This is a deep statement on the Godhead of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is John's cousin. John's about probably six months older than him. But he has this recognition of the fact that Jesus pre-existed him, this revelation that God gives him. Verse 31, I myself did not know him or literally did not recognize him. Some of the versions, I like the NASB better. It says, did not recognize him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. John says, I didn't recognize him. I didn't recognize him. It's so interesting because surely uh, he had heard the stories from birth about Jesus and like his mom and Mary's, uh, you know, Mary and John's mom, Elizabeth, who was this this elderly lady that God miraculously, uh, you know, it was a miraculous thing uh, when when Zechariah and um, Elizabeth became pregnant with John the Baptist. And I'm sure he heard from his mom. And then Mary walked in when I was six months pregnant, and you leapt in my womb. And you know how stories are from your mom's growing up? He was probably like, yeah, mom. Heard the story like 100 times, right? It's really interesting. I I find it interesting, right? Surely he'd heard the stories, but I think probably growing up, Jesus just seemed so normal. Now he was a good kid. He never did anything wrong which probably was a little annoying to his brothers and maybe his cousin, because John kind of seems like a hothead, right? You brood of vipers! He's calling out Herod on, you know, the king on his sin and all this. He didn't hold, pull any punches, you know. But now John's been out in the desert for years, 
He's been a recluse. He's been eating locusts and honey, and he'd like cover himself with animal skins. He was kind of the strange cousin. Anybody have a strange cousin? Yeah, everybody's got a strange cousin, right? But he, he was powerful. I mean, Jesus calls him the greatest man who ever lived. But he was hanging out out in the desert, this wild-eyed prophet waiting for what God would call him to do. Just going about life. And I think during this time, Jesus just doesn't seem to be mounting up to much. You remember later in, later in John's ministry when he's in prison, he actually has some doubts. Because Jesus isn't doing the things he expected Messiah to do. He isn't, you know, taking on power and raising up an army and all this. And John goes, uh, is it really the one? And, and Jesus sends him back a message from Isaiah. Hey, the, you know, these things are coming to pass. Blessed are those who do not stumble on account of me. It's this profound moment, actually, in the, in, in the book of Luke that we see. But John, I think, I, I think what's significant about this is how often do we miss recognizing the work of God around us in the midst of the normal life, in the mundane? I think we miss him all the time because we're not paying attention. But I find it really significant that, that it's in John's faithfulness and obedience that he hears God's voice, that he obeys, and then he recognizes the work of God and what God's trying to do. It's so profound. And I think that's the, tr- the truth in our lives, too, is we're always oftentimes looking for the dramatic, and sometimes we receive the dramatic, but it is, um, it's usually we're, we're, we're wanting that, we're reaching for that, we're trying to get the dramatic, right? And it's so many times in the mundane, in just being faithful, in being obedient, in living our lives day by day, the way he's called, getting up, changing another diaper, praying for your kid, discipling your kid, being faithful, serving in the area that God's called you to serve in. And if you're paying attention, I think it's in those moments so many times when God can step in and show you, hey, this is a God moment. This is an area I want to move. This is a life I want to impact. There's significance in this. Pay attention. Pay attention. Do what you're called to do. Be faithful. Be obedient. And in his obedience, the Holy Spirit, in such a profound way, reveals Jesus to him. He has this aha moment. Verse 32. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, God told him, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is God's chosen one. The one that you see the Spirit come down and the Spirit descended on Jesus and remained on him in the form of a dove. Not that he was a dove, but in the, in the form, the best thing John could describe it as is the form of a dove and, and the Spirit rests on him and, and remains on him. And John knows this is the one. Aha. Aha. And it's the Holy Spirit that reveals Jesus, that reveals 
the Messiah that reveals the Lamb of God to the world. And I think that's a very profound thing. And I wanted to, to actually really spend some time with the rest of this message and dig into this concept, this person, the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit. In John 7, he said, whoever believes in me, as, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And he says with, with that, he was referring to, to the Holy Spirit. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Jesus said he promised before he was crucified that he would send the Holy Spirit to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That part of the, the job of the Holy Spirit, part of what the Holy Spirit does is draws us to Jesus, lets us know, hey, you're, there's things, convict of sin. There's things in your life that you need the blood of Jesus to cover. And to remind us that there's coming a day when we will stand before the throne of God. He promises to send. He, he refers to him as actually the helper. Because you're going to need some help to accomplish the mission that you're called to accomplish in this world. You cannot do it in your own power. You will stumble. Some of you have tried. And you know how that went. You cannot do it in your own power. And so he promises he will send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit, we see as John lays out and begins to lay out in that whole first chapter and the first 18 verses, that, the, that what we've come to understand is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one. And we cannot thread that needle because we're finite and he is infinite. Three unique beings who make up the one Godhead. Individual and yet completely one. And see, I think because, because we, um, we can't thread that needle in our minds, how does that work out? I think many times we de-emphasize the oneness of the Trinity. There's such a profound oneness to God that when we refer to the Holy Spirit, he is God. Well, Jesus is God. God the Father, God, Jesus tells us, pray, our Father in heaven. The Holy Spirit actually helps us, enable us to pray. The Holy Spirit helps, helps us pray, helps us pray. I want to talk about some of the things the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, does in our lives. See, John talks about this. He says he's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he baptizes us into God's family. Here, here's a verse on that. It says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And see, actually, um, and so we see in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is an active agent in bringing us into the family of God. You know, when we water baptize here, it's a symbol of a life 
that's, that's been, you know, essentially it's, it's a symbol of we die with Jesus. It's a symbol, right? And we come out of the grave into new life with him. It's a symbol, but there's a symbol of something that actually spiritually already happened in our hearts and lives through faith in him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.14 says this, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We're his children. And so different, um, different uh, denominations uh, use language and, and refer to things in, in a little bit different ways. But I, I believe one of the things that Jesus does is he brings us or baptizes us into God's family, into his body, the church, the big C church, universal. Another thing he does is he indwells us and is the seal of our salvation. Ephesians 1.13 says this, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And I believe that if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, you have really put your faith and trust in him. Something profound happened actually within you. The Spirit of God indwelt you and indwells you. Because of that, our actions, we are instructed not to grieve the Holy Spirit. It talks about our, our bodies together. Our bodies is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, the way you live your life matters. Where you take the Spirit of God who dwells inside you matters. How you live your life matters. Um, another thing the Spirit does is the Spirit fills. He fills us and empowers us. He fills and empowers us. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. And that's a big word that we don't say much anymore, but it means excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. And here's the contrast. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. And he goes on. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And actually, it's really interesting. In the Greek, it's the idea of be being filled. It's an active thing. It's continual thing. Why do you need to continue to be filled with the, the Holy Spirit? I like the way that John Wimber, who founded the network of Vineyard Churches, um, put it. He said, it's because we leak. And you know that in life, right? You know how distracting life gets, how caught up in the cares of this world. And that's why um, I think, and I've just observed this, and I know denominations discuss this in different ways and have language for when things happen and all, and all of that. 
Um, I believe that every believer has the Holy, Holy Spirit that indwells them. But, man, sometimes somebody comes to faith in Jesus, and it is a powerful moment. And, man, the presence of God comes in such a powerful way. And there's snot and there's tears and all that, right? That's a good cry when there's, like, tears and snot. And... But it's this powerful moment, and God just... And, and other times, I know there's people that come to, to Jesus, and it's very personal and gentle. And then for many of those, at a moment a little later in life, they experience a powerful moment. Not everybody, but some. A powerful moment with God. And I've just observed this over the years of ministry. And I think these are times when the Holy Spirit fills us and the Holy Spirit empowers us for the work that he wants us to do. Sometimes it's dramatic. Sometimes it's gentle. Sometimes it's not dramatic, right? In fact, Jesus talking to to Nicodemus, here's what he says about the Spirit of God. He says, the Spirit is like the wind. There's an element of mystery. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, right? He compares it to the wind. And if you know anything about the wind, sometimes the wind is powerful. Last night... um, During worship, you could feel the wind shaking the whole building, and we had a storm rolling through, right? Sometimes the wind is gentle and subtle and quiet. I had a friend um, who's an awesome guy, uh, one of my good friend's dads, and he was one of our youth leaders. And uh, I grew up in a church that, like, um, some of this more we'd call supernatural stuff kind of weirded us out sometimes. But he went to... um, he went to Africa, on a, uh, to Uganda on a missions trip, and he had an experience there that dramatically changed him. They were in a, in a little church building, and actually with the sound of a rushing wind, the presence of God blew through that place, literally knocked him down, and he had a powerful experience with God. And he came back, and he was changed. And this was the interesting thing. Because it's possible to have a powerful experience and nothing actually changed, but he was changed. He would tell so many people about Jesus. He put up Bible verses on his, on his like, signboard in front of his business. I mean, he was changed. This experience that he had with God radically, radically changed him. I've had a couple powerful moments, experiences with the presence of God um, where God's, like, revealed stuff to me and, and just, like, ex- powerful moments with the Spirit of God. Um, I think that sometimes he gives us eyes to see reality as it is, to see God's activity in the midst of the mundane. He quickens your spirit. Sometimes that's powerful. Sometimes it's not. I remember a couple times driving in my car. I don't know why car, but this happened to me twice. And one time on my way, driving home from work on the interstate um, in my early 20s, uh, I, I was coming back, and I was really, um, I'd never wanted to go to Africa growing up. In fact, I prayed, Lord, please don't send me to Africa. That was a song back in the 80s, and I, I prayed it, and it didn't work. Um, anyway, but actually what's weird is as, as I grew older, God started putting this back burning passion to go to Africa. And so I'm praying on my way home from work, God, if you want me to go to Africa, I had this friend that was over in Africa. I hadn't heard from him in months. Lord, let me hear from Luke. Let me get an email from Luke. And as I'm driving, I have this powerful experience with the presence of God where my whole face just feels like it's on fire, tingly. 
So weird. I drive home. I get out. I go down into, into my room, and I, this will date me, I dial up um, the internet into Juno and check my email, and I had an email in my box from Luke. And there's a whole bunch of more dramatic things around that story. But long story short, the second time I had that experience was a, was a year and a half later on my way down to Texas as I'm praying. And the same thing, you know, experience with the Holy Spirit. And I get down to this workshop I'm doing in Texas, and I get invited to go to Africa. And I go to Africa. Interesting how God works. Sometimes you have these moments with God where he fills you and empowers you. And actually, here's what, here's what I believe. I believe you can resist that. I believe you cannot lean into that. And I think you can miss what God might want to do in your lives. I think we, we are called. And I think sometimes during worship, you feel that. I think it's a great prayer for God, fill me up again, anew, afresh, so that I can accomplish what you want me to accomplish in this world. Another thing the Holy Spirit does, he produces fruit. A big theological word for that is sanctification, that he makes us more like Jesus. He makes us holier. He makes us holy. And it's a process. It doesn't happen immediately. Many of you know you got saved, things changed, you stumbled, you came back. But throughout your life, you've seen this pattern of him moving you closer to Jesus as you cooperated with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is what, why Paul says, says this, Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit. And the Greek, it's literally like stay in step with the Spirit. Like learn to live your life responsibly to the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he goes on to talk about that. And then he talks about the fruit that the Spirit cre creates in our lives. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And there's this process of sanctification when we're overwhelmed because of what the Lamb of God did for us and the, and, and the forgiveness and the love that we have, that we're part of God's family, that we cooperate and we walk with the Spirit. And he makes us more like Jesus. And he produces these things in our life. And actually, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. He didn't say you will know them because of their power. He said, by their fruit. In fact, um, a kind of a sobering scripture. There is a scripture where, where Jesus said, hey, there's going to be actually people who do, do these miraculous things. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew them. It's a very sobering thought. And, and the message of sanctification, of what the Spirit does with us, is when we get out of step, is saying, oh, forgive me, Lord. Let me get back in step with you. Lead me, guide me, empower me to live the way that you want to. It's a process. And it comes in gratitude for what he's done for us. Sanctification, he, he produces fruit in our life. He gives spiritual gifts, gifts of the Spirit. These are tools. Um, these are gifts he gives us in order to minister to each other, to build up the body of Christ and to reach the lost, to fulfill the mission he's given us in, in, in this world. And some of these gifts we would view as more uh, natural aptitudes, and some we would view as more supernatural gifts. The truth is they're all from him. They're all supernatural. 
They're all meant to build each other up in our faith and our walk. And this is a whole, actually, probably another sermon series, right? So we can't really dig into this today. This is a full message or more messages, and we'll do that sometime. Um, October 9th and 10th, we have a great speaker that's coming. His name's Gary Best. He's the author of one of my favorite books uh, called Naturally Supernatural. And he's going to come for those two services and, and just talk to us about um, experiencing a little bit more of God's supernatural power in our day-to-day lives as we pray for others and doing it in a way that isn't weird and freaky. Uh, it's a great book. So anyway, so he gives spiritual gifts. And so here's, here's the value we have around here, and I hope this comes through in everything we do. Our, one of our values is we want to be biblically serious and responsive to the Holy Spirit. You know we highly value teaching Scripture, and I do my best as I study it to, to teach, you know, what I feel like is the most accurate interpretation and application of Scripture. And many of us in our lives, we, we lean, you know, a little more in one direction or another, and actually, that's okay. We need people of all kinds of different um, personalities in church together, right? That we're doing life because he's called us to be. He hasn't made us all the same. Some of you are more intellectually oriented. Some of you aren't. You're more oriented towards, towards really listening, and you, you, you just seem like uh, you, you listen and, and follow the Spirit a little better than some of the rest of us do. But here's what I think we are all called to do is we're all called to be serious about Scripture, and we're all called to be moving towards being responsive to the Spirit. We should all make that a goal in our lives, to live a life responsible and responsive to the Holy Spirit on a day-to-day basis. And as we get ready to close here, I'm going to invite Winston up. And let me just ask you, Are you living a life that's responsive to the Holy Spirit? And in this list of things that we talked about with the Holy Spirit, that's just touching on it. That's not exhaustive, okay? That would be a a sermon series. The Holy Spirit does so much more. He's the third person of the Trinity. I think we should pay attention to him. Are you living a life that's responsive to the Holy Spirit? Is that even anywhere close to the way you live your life on a daily basis. And see, some of the things that I think, um, sometimes it, it, it is that conviction of a habit or a thing where you're saying, it's just like you, you start pushing them off because you're like, why do we always have to talk about this? Do you know how conviction feels different um, than the voice of the enemy? The voice of the enemy produces shame and pushes you away from the Father. Conviction of sin, the Holy Spirit draws us to the Father. He says, yeah, yeah, deal with that. Because that behavior is actually causing you to withdraw from your relationship with God. And sometimes there's an area of resistance in our life. Sometimes responsiveness to the Spirit means he's calling you in some very specific ways to do some things, and you know it. Sometimes it's very uh, like, like he just calls you to, to have that conversation with a coworker to get involved in an area, and you're like, I'm too busy. I don't have the time. And, but you just feel this, like, unction from God. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm supposed to move there. Sometimes it's, it's praying for someone else. It's important to be responsive 
Sometimes he gives you a plant, something on your heart to share with something else. And you're like, I don't know. It feels kind of strange. Are you going to respond to him? Are you going to respond to him? Well, you can push it off. You can resist him. And in, in, in doing that, you can miss what he wants to do in your life, through your life, as a child of God. There's a, there's a saying, and I don't know who originated it, um, but I know Wimber used to quote it, and it goes like this, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. And what that means is, is you, can, you can push him off. That's where we're called to respond to what he's calling us to. I want to put up that first or that last verse from John 1 again that we read. See, because here's, here's what I want to leave here with. And I'd like you to stand right now. It says, the, it was the Spirit who came down and revealed Jesus. And you know, the primary role, the primary thing I believe that the Holy Spirit does in this world is reveal and bring glory to Jesus. He's always pointing towards Jesus. John 1. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, and I testify that that is God's chosen one. And I think that John the Baptist and John the author and the Holy Spirit would have us close by focusing on Jesus as we leave here. We need to talk about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Yet we need to also be reminded that he is always about reconciling people to Jesus, pointing people towards Jesus. And so... For those in the room and maybe those joining us online, can I ask you today, have you embraced what Jesus did for you? Have you embraced the Lamb of God, the free gift of God, eternal life? If not, maybe today is the day. Maybe today it clicked for you as we were talking about the sacrifice of Jesus, that he came to take on your sin, your shame. He came that you could embrace that and have eternal life that you could be filled with his Holy Spirit, placed into his family eternally, that you could experience the fruit of the Spirit and the freedom that comes in living with him. Maybe today's that day. Maybe the Spirit's drawing you. And for some in the room or, or, or online, perhaps right now your, your heart's beating a, a little bit faster. I, I believe that's because actually the Spirit's saying, come home, come on. And so if that's you, in the room, I just want to invite you to, to pray a prayer right now after me. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. I want to invite you to pray this out loud. And if some others in the room want to pray along too, just to give those others courage, why don't you do that? Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. And, and I know I cannot make it to the Father on my own. And so I put my faith and my trust in you right now. I believe you died and rose again. Forgive me of my sins. I want to turn my life to you. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. Thank you for salvation. In Jesus' name. As we close singing this song, here's, here's what I want you to do for, for everybody else in the room. Maybe there's an area you just, you, you need 
a fresh, um, something new from, from, from the Lord. As we sing this song, maybe would you just call out and say, Holy Spirit, I just need something from you. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm distracted. I'm confused. Would you move in my life?